Emily Riles, I'm the Executive Director of the Institute for Global Affairs, and welcome back to another episode of Confronting COVID-19 Global Implications and Futures, our webinar series that started uh, just as we at Northwestern all went into uh, working from home. And I realize this is the eighth or ninth uh, rendition, which means it's been a while now. Um, so as this pandemic continues, we're all getting more and more accustomed to related to relating to each other like this over technology and through video conferencing tools. But even before this began, of course, our interactions were becoming uh, more and more technologically mediated. So how has that trend influenced the way we're responding to COVID-19 now? I think about how different this crisis would be for us had it happened 10 years ago or 15 years ago, for example. And how is this pandemic in turn influencing the nature and quality of our relationships? Um, so to help us to think about this really important subject, we're delighted to welcome today Dr. Adam Wakes. So Adam is a social psychologist and an associate professor of management and organizations at the Northwestern Kellogg School of Management here at Northwestern. And Adam studies social influence and connection and meaning making and ethics. And he's just written a fantastic new book uh, published by Norton Press called The Power of Human, How Our Shared Humanity can help us to create a better world. So he's gonna talk from that book and help us understand the current moment. Welcome, Adam, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm really honored. Hello to everyone out there. I'm going to attempt now to share my screen and uh, give you my PowerPoint. And um, if there's anything awry, I'm hopeful that someone will text me, but otherwise I'll assume we're all going according to plan. All right. Okay, so thanks very much for the introduction. I'm going to talk today building a bit off this book that uh, I published uh, just a few months ago last year called The Power of Human. It's essentially the culmination of 15 years of research on uh, our tendency to um, see our, ten our declining tendency to deeply engage with other humans in the world and why that is important. Um, and I am going to you know, use this to talk about the current moment in the following way. My sense is that our general response uh, globally to this pandemic uh, has been largely insufficient, and that's possibly because of some of the trends that I describe in the book. Now, I'll um, start out by saying something, which is that everything I'm talking about comes from the perspective of being a psychologist, and because I know there's a real varied uh, audience online, I just want to be clear what I mean by psychologist. So by psychologist, I, I don't mean the type of person who uh, sees into the future or uh, asks you about your mother or puts you on the couch. I don't have uh, expertise in any of this type of psychology. Um, instead, um, I'm going to be talking from the perspective of research. So the type of work I do is giving people surveys, uh, giving people, uh, looking at people's behavior and um, 
occasionally scanning people's brains as well to understand how they think about these things. And the main thing that I've been studying, if there's been one kind of thorough line through my research over the past 16 years now, it's been studying the process of humanization and dehumanization. Um, and by dehumanization, just to give you a definition of what I mean by dehumanization, I mean not like wild scale uh, genocide type dehumanization where we're literally treating others as animals or vermin. I'm talking about the mere failure to consider others as having uh, minds capable of thinking and feeling. And um, seeing human, which I think is the important part here, is, is the converse of this. Uh, seeing human represents the idea of humanization, really considering others as having minds capable of thinking and feeling. So at the ultimate uh, level, we're just talking about engagement and disengagement with each other, okay? So dehumanization is a lack of engagement with each other. Uh, humanization is a real engagement with others as having deep inner lives. And what I try to document in my book is a trend that's been going on for at least the past uh, five decades or so, whereby I believe we're coming apart. Now, other people have documented this in other fields, uh, I'll give you some data to support this idea that people have become gradually atomized since the uh, at least the late 1960s or so. And I think this uh, pulling apart phenomenon can partially explain why we failed to solve this large scale coordination problem, which is acting in solidarity to combat the, the uh, virus in various ways. So uh, let me, first show you some data on empathy, okay? Now, it would have been great if someone had just been measuring my definition of dehumanization over the past several decades, but instead I'm gonna show you uh, related data. So data that is related to deep engagement with others and show you that there's this consistent trend. So one, if we look at surveys of college students where college students are asked to report uh, their empathy in terms of empathic concern, that is uh, how deeply they feel others' emotions or in terms of perspective taking, how often do they try to get into another person's mind. What you see here, uh, starting in the late 1970s when these surveys were given up until about 10 years ago, is a steady decline where college students are reporting less uh, evidence is if we had represented uh, nationally representative data and this is data from the US, we also see a, a general decline in trust. So if you look at the general social survey over a period from uh, the uh, early 1970s to the early 2010s, you see on the survey that's given every year, uh, people are responding less and less affirmatively to the statement, most people can be trusted. That is, there's a general sense of distrust on the right. So more evidence of this uh, sort of disengagement with others. And then if we look at just basic getting together, uh, socializing in person, what I'm showing you here are uh, uh, sets of data from eighth graders, 10th graders, and 12th graders, um, and uh, students uh, early year college students, 
the first graph shows a declining percentage of people saying they get together with their friends almost every day from uh, 1976 to 2016. The other graph um, looks at the hours of week people report spending socializing with friends or going to parties. So also just this basic level of socializing getting together has declined from the mid 80s to uh, today. And this is not just being replaced with online getting together um, because what you see is that there's also been a spike in loneliness amongst this uh, cohort, uh, especially since 2008. So if you had been looking at the data from say the late 70s to uh, the late 2000s, you would say, oh, okay, loneliness is declining, but instead we've seen a, a spike in loneliness over the past 12 years or so. so all of what this says is that people feel uh, less empathy toward each other, they trust each other less, they're getting together less in person, and um, online getting together isn't a real substitute for this because loneliness is uh, increasing. Uh, and then if we branch out to data beyond the US, what can we look at? Well, the best data that's been measured across the globe has to do with sort of cultural orientations toward individualism versus collectivism. So at the most basic level, individualism just refers to the idea that uh, the most important uh, sort of unit is the individual. And we should really prize personal choice and personal freedoms and individual rights and um, individual expression. And if you look at survey data from either the World Value Survey or Gallup, you'll see that virtually every country around the world, there's a few exceptions. I think um, uh, Japan might be an exception. I think uh, Ukraine might be an exception. You know, there's really idiosyncratic, maybe five or six exceptions. Vir virtually every country around the world has become more individualist in uh, prioritizing the individual over the group. Now, what does individualism have to do with disengagement? Well, in one sense, individualism could be a good thing because with increasing appreciation for individual preferences and individual expression means there's a lot of tolerance for people to be individuals. That, that is, there's a lot of, uh, with rises in individualism, you get increasing tolerance for people who are not like me more acceptance of people from different countries, uh, different socioeconomic backgrounds, um, you know, different sexualities, et cetera. But what I think has been the end result of sort of this rise in individualism is uh, lack of real engagement with others. And to kind of take you out of the graphs to really uh, represent this concretely, I'll give you an example of my uh, neighborhood on the north side of Chicago. So. I live in a very socially progressive area, uh, the type of place where you see a lot of lawn signs like uh, families belong together, hate has no home here, Black Lives Matter. And these are really, I think, positive uh, emblems of individualism, this idea that um, everyone is an individual, everyone has individual rights, we need to value all humans. And so these are really individualist expressions of tolerance. Now, um, just before I moved to this neighborhood, however, I, I noticed that there was a, a 
sort of a discussion about whether to convert an apartment building into a halfway house for people getting out of uh, jail or, or, or rehab. And um, on the discussion about this halfway house online, about whether to convert this building into a halfway house, there was a lot of concern expressed like, oh, you know, these people could be dangerous. Um, oh, there's kids in this neighborhood. Is this going to drive the property value down? Things like that. And so I also think this is the essence of individualism. In short, individualism and this rise in individualism uh, says to me, uh, we tolerate all individuals. We just don't necessarily want to live next to them. So I think this is kind of part of this spreading apart that I document in my uh, book. Now, uh, where does this come from? This idea that people are becoming more atomized, more focused on the individual versus the collective, less trusting of others, um, less empathic toward others. I identify four different pillars of dehumanization. And I'm calling them pillars because I'm not totally sure if they're only causes of dehumanization, but also, uh, I think, consequences as well. So they kind of go part and parcel with these individualizing trends that I'm uh, showing. And, and um, I think three of them will be very familiar to you. The fourth one I'll explain a little bit. But um, what are these kind of pillars? Well, one is just the rise in automation. And by automation, I mean anything from actually machines performing work to uh, this kind of automation that we keep in our pockets. The idea is simply that more and more of our interactions become uh, replaced or mediated by technology, and that pulls people apart, this rise in automation. So that's fairly obvious. Uh, we also see rising political polarization. This is something that has been a trend well before um, Trump, um, well before Obama, uh, just increasing disconnection between people on the political left and the political right, right meaning that uh, in general, people are less engage with others who don't share their ideology. Um, and there's a lot of data to support that. Um, a third kind of obvious pillar of this coming apart phenomenon is uh, what I call stratification. This is really just income inequality. The idea that um, the lowest uh, people of the lowest socioeconomic status and people uh, uh, the highest socioeconomic status are becoming more dissimilar in their income, in their wealth, and therefore simply have less interaction with each other and less in common. So these are kind of three fairly obvious pillars of this dehumanizing shift. The fourth one is a little bit more complex, which is why I just want to say an extra word on it. It's what I'm calling marketization. And this is highlighted nicely in uh, Michael Sandel's book, What Money Can't Buy. The idea here is that uh, free marketization across the world is simply more common. That is, there are now markets, free markets for things there didn't used to be markets for. So anything from the idea that um, you could uh, purchase access to the carpool lane on the highway, even if you're a solo occupancy driver, to the idea that you could purchase access to your uh, doctor's home phone number, uh, if you have enough money, um, to the idea that uh, children in school are uh, paid to read books to get their reading up. There are all these examples that Sandel gives 
of the following idea. There used to be all of these things that were sort of just governed by communal norms. We try to be a good driver. We try not to pollute the road. Uh, we try to have a good interaction with our physician. We try to get kids to read books. Now those communal interactions are being really placed in a market where money is involved. And that sort of changes the nature of our relationships from community relationships to uh, buyer-seller relationships. Now, two extreme examples of this to show how this kind of plays into a dehumanizing shift I'll, I'll uh, demonstrate to you and then I'll sort of tie all of this into kind of the current moment. But uh, one extreme example of this marketization phenomenon comes from the South by Southwest uh, Festival in Austin, Texas, uh, where every year um, people gather to watch music and films and visit panels and things like that. And a few years ago, um, homeless people uh, were outfitted with Wi-Fi routers and T-shirts. This was the idea of some marketing firm. And the T-shirt essentially said, uh, hello, my name is Clarence. I'm a Wi-Fi hotspot network. If you uh, log on to my network, I don't know how this actually worked, and put in your information, you can get access to Wi-Fi via me through this router. And so they thought this was a clever way to sort of uh, put homeless people to work, I guess, but they faced a lot of backlash for this because you know, here you're literally treating people as sort of an object or a service, uh, as something to be bought and sold in a market context. Um, another example comes from Disney World, where a few years ago, uh, the story came out that uh, at Disney World, there are special uh, lines for people with disabilities so they can get to the ride sooner. And um, this sort of cottage industry popped up of rich Manhattan moms purchasing um, a hand, handicapped tour guides to essentially cut the lines at Disney World. So, you know, uh, disabled people all of a sudden essentially becomes kind of bought and sold for, for a price. And there was backlash against this as well. So these are extreme examples of how human beings can be kind of turned into stores of value and treated less as humans and more in terms of, well, what is your market worth? So my book lays this out as a problem, this dehumanizing shift uh, that occurs uh, part and parcel with income inequality, rising political polarization, rising automation, and rising marketization. And what I want to suggest is that this is not a good thing. In fact, the thrust of the book is to say, well, why do humans matter? You know, we've gone uh, you know, along with these trends. Maybe there's something good about these trends. Uh, my argument is that most of these trends are not good for us because human beings give a lot to us in terms of uh, psychological meaning. So the presence of another person in the room um, or the, just knowing that, say, a human being prepared our sandwich rather than some kind of faceless corporation. There have been studies on this that human touch really gives our life meaning or knowing that a bracelet was made by a human being versus a machine. The presence of humans give us, gives us psychological meaning. Uh, when we're aware of human beings, we're more likely to behave morally. We're more likely to behave kindly uh, when we recognize the presence of human beings. Uh, humans are also essential to m moving us to act as a collective. 
So in all of the research on persuasion and how do you get people to do difficult things like uh, recycle or um, vote, you know, all of these kind of collective action problems, it turns out the most effective way you can get people to do anything is to tell them other humans are doing this as well. When people know that other humans are voting, they vote. When people know that other humans are using electric cars, they want to use electric cars. So humans are important to move us to act and uh, humans are quite motivating for us. Um, that is, we often do things, we're motivated to act on behalf of other people, uh, often more so than just to benefit ourselves or to earn money. So often uh, there's a lot of research in my world showing that, um, even recent research showing that the best way to get people to engage in social distancing or washing their hands uh, is not to tell them, you know, do this for yourself. It's uh, giving them the message, you should do this on behalf of other humans. So um, it's kind of interesting living in this very humanless time because uh, it's sort of a natural test of some of my hypotheses. How much do humans matter? Now, uh, to go into the current moment and to kind of speculate on how this trend has affected the current moment, Again, I, I think this coming apart phenomenon, this idea of kind of every person for themselves and we're this you know, globalist marketplace, but um, you know, we don't wanna necessarily live next to someone different from us. I think that left us kind of ill prepared to act as a unit. Um, and yet there has been some variation from country to country that I'll talk about in a moment that speaks to how um, different degrees of individualism within a country makes the country uh, more or less, made the country more or less prepared to deal with the, the crisis that we're facing. I also think this issue raises questions about whether the pandemic has made us more or less connected. I have uh, uh, some thoughts on that and a little bit of data on that that I can present. And how will the pandemic affect the four pillars that I just talked about? So um, automation, stratification, polarization, and marketization. So let me walk through each one of these. So um, as I mentioned, this general sort of global trend toward individualism, I think has uh, made it so it's very hard to coordinate, coordinate with other countries, coordinate within a country. Um, people wanna do their own thing. But if we look at data uh, comparing countries that have done better or worse, there are some meaningful trends. And, and one caveat here is, uh, as a psychologist, I'm not an expert on how different countries have fared. There's a lot of debate over this. Um, you know, a lot of people say New Zealand, Vietnam seem to be doing well. Um, there's a lot of debate about Sweden, their strategy of kind of keeping the country open. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Um, what I'm looking at is other people's data where they're simply looking at rates of increase in COVID-19 cases. And uh, one of the most interesting pieces of data that I found on this uh, comes from a guy at, at London School of Economics who showed essentially individualistic countries did worst, collectivist countries did better. So, so unpacking that. Countries that really prioritize personal choice personal freedom, uh, the power of the individual, um, autonomy. These are the countries that experienced higher rates of increases in COVID-19 cases, whereas countries um, that were more collectivistic, 
that uh, appreciate things like conformity and obedience to authority and uh, doing as others do and thinking about not just the individual, but the family unit and the country unit, those countries did better. And um, uh, Michael Muthakrishna, who been delving into this data, writes about this. He says, collectivistic cultures may have evolved a suite of behaviors that are well adapted to epidemics, less mouth-to-mouth kissing, physical affection in general, more vigilance of others, even in-group members, social learning, conformity, obedience to authority, avoidance or orientation, etc. And this is all speculation, um, but these are the types of things that may have played a role. When we look at uh, the data, this is just collectivism plotted against uh, rate of increases in cases. And what you see as you go um, higher, uh, I guess, rightward on the x-axis, uh, these are the more collectivistic countries, Guatemala, Venezuela, Pakistan. Uh, leftward is uh, very individualistic countries like Australia, Netherlands, United States, United Kingdom. And then the y-axis is the case log. There's a clear correlation here that holds, even when you control for how um, tight a culture is, the efficiency of um, government, GDP, inequality, median age, education. So when you isolate individualism as a factor, that is how much do people really prize being an individual and having personal choice and freedom and not wanting to conform, you see those countries tended to fare worse. So it's potentially the case that countries particularly prone to this kind of everyday disengagement with one another did worse. And um, what's unclear, what we still need to tease apart is why. You know, are these people who just desire their individual freedom, so they're gonna go out and go to the store and walk in the park and not wear a mask, even if someone tells them to? Um, is there just less concern for the collective? Is there less um, interest in conformity, more desire to deviate from the status quo? These are all possibilities. Um, so that's, I think, one interesting part of this. Another interesting part we can ask is, okay, what is the pandemic going to do to our tendency to engage with each other? And I've been throwing a lot of terms around that I've been using a bit synonymously, but aren't quite synonymous. So um, humanization, engagement, um, um, collectivism, connection here. They're not all the same. They're often uh, correlated. But here we could ask just about kind of social connection, the degree to which people feel uh, like they have friends and like they have social support. And early on, there was a lot of concern that this whole uh, social distancing phenomenon was going to make people feel really um, isolated. In fact, today, uh, there was a survey that came out that uh, said 47% of Americans say they feel more lonely than usual during COVID-19. And um, it's not so clear that people are very accurate at, at assessing how good they felt before the pandemic and, and now I'll show you some data that speaks to that in a moment. One important thing when we think about how the pandemic affects um, isolation uh, is the following idea that comes from one of my former mentors, uh, John Cassiopo. So uh, John was really instrumental in saying 
objective isolation that is being uh, actually apart from others, or maybe actually only having one or two friends is very distinct from subjective isolation, which is the feeling of loneliness. So um, what he really meant was you could have just one or two friends and feel extremely connected people. Conversely, you could have 200 friends and feel very isolated. Now, objective and subjective isolation are often correlated, but not as strongly as we might think. They're very distinct. And so this idea that because we're physically isolated means we're uh, lonely is not necessarily true. And my speculation um, early on was that if anything, connection has increased, especially amongst weaker ties. And what I mean by weaker ties is people that are more like acquaintances. And maybe you have these experiences of during this time while we're all locked down, reaching out to people that you haven't talked to for a while or hearing from people you haven't talked to in a while. So I have a sense that the pandemic, if anything, would be a slight boost to social connection. Now, uh, what does the data say? So far, the data in my mind is kind of imperfect because a lot of it is asking people, well, how do you feel compared to a few months ago? And people aren't really good at knowing how they felt a few months ago. So finally, there's a little bit of data that actually measured people's sense of connection uh, before and uh, before the pandemic really hit and, and after. And I'll show you that data on the next slide. Um, came from researchers in the US and Canada, and um, they actually wrote an op-ed about this data in the Washington Post today. But what the data shows, essentially, uh, where they got measures of social connection and isolation from surveys given in early February, and in some cases, early January, and then now, or more recently in early April, what you see across surveys from Canada, the US, and the UK um, is just a real minuscule drop in connectedness. So one way I can show you this is looking at a different score from time two to time one. And all you need to really take a look at is that most people, what this data shows where the x-axis is change in social connectedness from later in the pandemic to pre-lockdown is that most people are reporting uh, zero change or just a tiny drop in connectedness. Um, so the researchers talk about really how resilient people have been. It doesn't support my hypothesis that connection has increased, but it suggests people's connection stayed the same. Um, interestingly, the researchers looked at introverts and extroverts separately and found that if anything um, loneliness uh, has been slightly worse um, in terms of a change and connectedness has been slightly worse in terms of a change for extroverts versus introverts so what these graphs show is that um, as we typically see introverts feel less connected and more lonely than extroverts but if you see the change from before the pandemic to during the pandemic, you see that extroverts um, uh, have dropped in connectedness a little bit more and uh, increased a tiny bit in loneliness. But these changes aren't really significant, all of which is to say 
there's been a lot of uh, status quo around connected. So that's something to monitor whether we'll see kind of sort of a solidarity or an engagement, or maybe people will start to feel lonelier or more connected over time. And then finally, we could think about, all right, well, post virus, what are these four pillars going to look like? Um, in the interest of time, I'll just say, as of now, I, my concern is that all of this is going to be uh, worse. So what has the virus done? It's made us more reliant on machines and automation that separate us from one another. You see uh, consistent trends in polarization. It's, this is not uh, what we had hoped to see in terms of people coming together uh, from people on the left and right in this shared spirit of we're going to fight this, this uh, collective enemy. Uh, very different from September 11th. Uh, stratification has only gotten worse. So the people in precarious positions are now in even more precarious positions. The people who are in the 1% and have uh, stable socioeconomic status are going to come out of this better. And marketization. Uh, if anything, I've heard more discussion of you know, what's the uh, economic worth of a human life? You know, having these discussions about really what is the monetary value of a human life now than ever before. And so uh, my concern, which I, I share with the uh, French author, uh, Michelle Hulbeck, um, is uh, a bit depressing. The world will be the same, but worse after the virus. Um, maybe that's an overstatement, but at least, at least in terms of these dehumanizing trends, I think that could persist. So I'll uh, stop there. Uh, I want to thank you guys. I'm going to unshare my screen and then I will uh, take some questions. All right, great. Well, thank you so much, Adam. Very, very interesting and lots to talk about. Um, Maybe I'll just start uh, with, I think, one of the really surprising um, uh, uh, findings you reported uh, that uh, actually we're not seeing a decrease in connectedness or an increase in loneliness since this in the last eight weeks. At least. Uh, so that leads me to ask um, a question about the automation pillar in particular of your um, of, of your um, scheme. So um, we know that digital technologies have been critical in this crisis in so many ways. Um, um, and I think a lot of us were surprised, for example, as teachers that uh, we expected a disaster and we finding new forms of connectedness that we didn't expect. It's not all roses, but it's not all awful either. Um, and, um, you know, many of us, I think, would have described social media and the Internet as pretty dehumanizing before, but um, a lot of people are reporting new uses of the Internet, online free art classes, concerts being given by, you know, Yo-Yo Ma and so on and so on. So, um, so I, this is all to say your technology pillar seems to encapsulate quite a lot. Can you at all break this down for us and tell us what's the issue here? Is it the lack of physical touch? Is it the addictive algorithms in our devices? Are there any design principles for digital technologies or automation that would produce more genuine social connection? Anything more you can say more concrete or specific about that? Yeah, so first thing that I wanna express, which is sort of known in the literature is that uh, virtual connection 
is no substitute for in real life connection. And you've probably experienced that in your FaceTimes with friends and family or your Zoom meetings. Um, you know, there's this asynchrony, uh, there's things that are missing. Um, however, uh, I, I did some research a couple of years ago where collaborator and I looked at all of the data that exists to look at the connection between online technology use and um, social engagement, essentially. And what we found is that um, technology can have positive or negative effects on, say, empathy and deep engagement with others, um, depending on how you use it and in the following way. One, if you're using technology as a um, substitute, just as a substitute for in real life interaction, then you're going to get uh, lower social connectedness. But if you use technology to um, sort of complement in real life relationships, which a lot of us have done during the pandemic, then it can be a boost to, techno uh, to, to empathy and sociability. So uh, that's a lot of what we're doing now, not necessarily in teaching per se, but you know, now I have young kids and they wanna talk to their grandparents every day. We're using FaceTime every day. So we see my parents every day, whereas you know, previously I wouldn't see them that frequently. And so using technology to kind of complement that, I think represents a boom. There's another interesting component to this. Um, so even forgetting about the pandemic, my sense is that uh, younger people know how to use technology in a more socially gratifying way. I, I sound like I'm uh, 80 years old when I'm saying that, but um, my sense is that, and, and there have been some studies on this that um, say adolescents, even though we think about screens ruining the lives of our youth, can use social media in ways that really complement their offline relationships. And I think the rest of us are, are catching on to that. Um, ultimately, though, uh, it would be interesting to look over time where, you know, four months out from now, do we get to a point where we're just saying, you know, technology is no substitute for really being in the same room with I think you're muted. I can't hear you. Can you hear me now? Good. Yes. Yeah. So follow-up question from one of our listeners is, um, so does this suggest any, um, any implications for um, how technology could be used to combat dehumanization? Right. Um, yes. Yeah, so, so one, so one, as, as I mentioned, as long as it's being used as, uh, as a complement and not a substitute, I think you get some positive effects. The other part of this that I forgot to mention um, that we found in looking through the literature is that people who in general have a difficult time connecting with others or just have limited mobility, like elderly people, um, in normal times really benefit from connecting with others through technology. So we also talk about technology as a better than nothing substitute for others. Now, 
um, in terms of how to use technology in a way to better our mental health versus worsen it, I think there's also been a problematic aspect of this, which is in daily life, we engage in social comparison with others. We uh, say, well, how am I doing? And how do we assess how we're doing? Well, we look at everyone else and we see how they're doing. We know that online, people don't really present the fully authentic view of themselves. Um, and oftentimes what we see online is what people call the Facebook self or kind of the best version of oneself. That's changed a little bit during the pandemic because we see in their pajamas or whatever. But um, what I'm getting at is in terms of, well, how can we use technology to kind of enhance our relationships? What you don't want to use it is as a tool to, to kind of gauge your own well-being because you need to keep in mind that people are not presenting their full selves online. So again, I think uh, thinking about it in terms of doses, using it when other options are available, other options are not available for a daily check-in, um, not for trying to you know, go through your uh, colleagues and seeing how productive they are during uh, lockdown. Other questions about uh, your other to... pillars? You there? Yeah. So we see a couple of other questions about your other pillar, polarization. So um, one of our listeners points out that, um, you know, one way to get really connected with some people is to hate other people, right? That you feel really connected to your in-group when you hate the out-group. So is it really all or nothing? I mean, could polarization I, I produce a kind of connectedness, maybe not a good one, but a kind of connectedness? Yeah. So some people have written that um, this situation is different from September 11th because after September 11th, where you did see, say, people from the left and right kind of rallying around sort of the shared national identity is because a clear enemy present, a clear human enemy was present. And when you have this nebulous thing like virus, it's not a human, it's invisible, um, it's less easy to rally people around this common enemy. I mean, you know, the other issue is you need these kind of common humanity pleas from, from leadership, and you're, you're not getting that from political leaders. Um, I think, sadly, also, we might be at a point where uh, even in the, uh, you know, even as we're well, let me actually speculate on something else. Different states are opening up at different times. And when you see that type of kind of individualism at kind of the state level, you don't really have a shared sense of national identity. So a lot of people have talked about that this is actually a wasted opportunity to bring people from the left and the right together rallying around this cause. When you have um, very few messages about a common humanity, a common identity, even a common enemy. Um, it's really kind of every state for themselves, every person for themselves. Um, and so, unfortunately, that I don't see that. Interesting. So, I, I mean, this is maybe a little bit social science inside baseball, but I'm just wondering if you could say a couple words about 
how you know that polarization is a cause as opposed to a feature or a symptom of dehumanization, right? That yeah. I realize well, it's probably recurrent well, in some way. Yeah. So, so I, um, I believe it's both. I believe it's both. Uh, it's certainly, it's certainly an outcome um, because as people fraction into homogenous in-groups where you know, I'm, a, if I'm liberal, I surround myself with liberals, or if I'm conservative, I surround myself with conservatives. Um, that's going to drive polarization. Uh, but on the other hand, it's certainly um, it's certainly a cause in in the following way. If we look at people's kind of tendencies over time to report hostility toward people from different sides of the political aisle, or even to say, you know, to treat them as less than human, we see that tracks with kind of polarization occurring and then these outcomes as a result. So I, I do think it, it is recursive. Um, it's why I kind of cheated and called them pillars rather than, than uh, causes. Uh, so a uh, couple questions about other possible factors. Um, one person would like to know if there's data um, crossing individualism versus community with degrees of religiosity and how religion might be a factor one way or another in people's sense of humanization. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, so Michelle Gelfand, who's done some of this cultural psychology work on tight versus loose cultures, um, which is a little different from individualism and collectivism. Tight cultures are more rule following, obedient, uh, fewer deviations from uh, the status quo, fewer things allowed in the society. Um, tight cultures have fared better uh, than, than loose ones. I believe, although this isn't, um, there might be some tracking with uh, religiosity and, and tightness. Um, the other thing that we know about religiosity is that it can be a really positive thing to get people to act as a, a collective. So if anything, I would imagine countries where there's a real shared religiosity, uh, you could see them responding well. That's my speculation because religiosity makes people really pro-social toward members of one's own uh, religious community. Could, it could have some negative effects on those outside the community, but can be a real positive for a kind of collective action. Right. Related to that uh, for a little bit, um, one of there's an interesting question about storytelling and narratives. How could we deploy storytelling and narrative more at this moment to address uh, dehumanization in light of this crisis? Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah. So we know that people are driven to act when they act positively when they're aware that a another human being has been affected. So Mother Teresa is quoted as saying something like. Um, if I look at the masses, I will never act. If I look at you know one individual, I will. Something I'm botching the, the quote, um, but the idea is that when we can really 
see a single individual affected by a crisis that drives us to act in a positive way. And what someone had uh, written in the New York Times uh, in an op-ed, uh, I think that it was written in the form of the question, where are the photographs of the people affected by um, COVID-19? And so tying this into narrative, um, there aren't any kind of single individual stories that have become top of mind during the crisis. Um, you know, if we had kind of a single, even an emblem or a, or a narrative about a single human being or a single family or a single business, I think that could be the type of thing that really makes people recognize the importance of uh, social distancing or taking precautionary measures. Uh, in my book, I write about how People were really driven to um, support the cause of Syrian refugees when they saw the image of the single child who washed up on the shore of, of I can't remember, somewhere in Europe, I believe, because it was this, you know, single individual. It was there was a narrative there about this young person's life, and that was very humanizing and powerful. So uh, narratives can be are underutilized in this moment. Interesting. Um, I, I heard NPR today um, calling for just those stories. Send in your stories of people in your family who've died. We want to tell those stories. So um, right. perhaps that idea is right. getting out there. Certainly for us, having a journalism and a communication school, it seems like we've got a role to play in that. Um, so, um, uh, so what do you um, what do you think about? Um, sort of the the long-term effects of this if we you know do you think that if we stay you know if if we stay in this environment for say six months or a year of you know really being socially distanced from one another we're going to see different kinds of effects than we're seeing right now that that graph you show of really the effects not being that great will look very different yeah my sense is that um there's probably some turning point where uh, instead of connections staying constant or being good for some people or bad for some people, I think it'll start to really um, become difficult for folks. Um, now, I live with, you know, my wife and kids, and so you'll probably see breakdowns amongst people who live alone versus with families. I, I feel like my level of connection will, would probably stay the same. But I think it'll be really challenging. And then also you're going to have other stresses, economic stresses piling up that are going to play into uh, exacerbating feelings of disconnection with others. So I think um, in the short-ish term, we're pretty resilient and we can adapt and feel connected and check in with others. But it's a testable hypothesis. The other hypothesis would be that this becomes normal and we get better at doing Zoom yoga classes and Zoom seminars and things like this. And we say, oh, okay, um, you know, this is kind of the norm now. I would just throw one more thing in there, but, uh, and this is just not me as a scholar or anything. I I've just been personally surprised at how imperfect all the technology is for doing this stuff virtually. It's like, whether it's FaceTime, Zoom, WebEx. I mean, in one sense, you could say it's amazing. We're talking, we're in a group of over 100 people right now. I'm talking, I can hear you, you can see me, you can see my PowerPoint. But 
Um, it's been amazing how many of those little quirks or someone doesn't have a good Wi-Fi connection. I mean, I think that those little things start to build up and uh, break down a little bit. I, I totally hear you. I think um, as someone who gives a lot of talks, what I miss is the feeling in the room, you know, the feeling that people are either with you or they're not with you, right? Which you just can't get in the same way from yeah. a Zoom call. But maybe the last question you mentioned kind of piggybacking on um, what you said about the power of narrative and storytelling. Um, what about the reverse? What about government propaganda that sort of encourages dehumanization? One of our listeners mentions the impact of propaganda we know on genocide, right? And people's willingness to engage in genocide behavior. To what extent is the government's um, voice in this actually uh, causing us to be more dehumanized, what did you say? Yeah, well, I think with the, the government, people always talk about government's ability to change policy and produce policy outcomes. But what political leaders can really do even more than change policy is just change social norms. So um, if you have people in power who are talking about certain nationalities or certain classes of people being subhuman or less than or others or outsiders, um, that's certainly going to change people's ability to say, oh, I guess this is okay. Um, there's you know, been recent research on this from UChicago and, and Kellogg on this phenomenon that, um, you know, reminding people that there is an anti-immigrant um, uh, politician who's been elected uh, makes people more comfortable with donating to anti-immigrant causes. So I think uh, you could call that propaganda or just kind of political communication, but it certainly affects people's behaviors. For taking time to talk with us, this is really timely research, and I'm sure a lot of us are going to run out and get it and continue to you um, over email or, or elsewhere. Um, just want to thank you all also for joining us today. Um, uh, for uh, well, please join us again at the same time next week for the next installment of our webinar, confronting COVID-19 global implications and futures. Um, the next week, we are going to host Professor of Chemical and Biological Engineering, Dr. Luis Amaral, who will be discussing the challenges of predictive modeling of COVID-19. Um, so that should be interesting. Um, until then, everyone, please stay well and stay healthy and stay in touch uh, apropos today's talk. So thanks so much. And thank you. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye.